0: Hello, it's the Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Old Master Upgrades. Could 12 Van Dyke paintings really be authentic rather than copies or workshop paintings? Plus, Claude Monet and Joe Mitchell collide in Paris and Elizabeth I in a Tudors exhibition at the Met in New York. Georgina Adam joins me to discuss the intriguing story of the bankrupt entrepreneur and art collector, the museum scholar, and a host of old master paintings given new attributions. I talked to Suzanne Paget, the curator of an exhibition bringing together the great impressionist Claude Monet and the post-war American abstract painter Joan Mitchell at the Fondation Louis Vuitton in Paris. And this episode's work of the week is a portrait of Elizabeth I of England, known as the Civ Portrait, which is one of the highlights of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. York's exhibition, The Tudors, Art and Majesty in Renaissance England. The show's curators, Elizabeth Cleland and Adam Eaker, tell us about the painting. Before all that, the latest series of our sister podcast, A Brush With, is now complete. On the podcast, I talk to leading artists in depth about the influences and cultural experiences that shape their life and work. This latest series features conversations with Glenn Brown, Annika Yee, William Kentridge and John O'Confora. So do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear those and to explore the catalogue of more than 50 conversations. And do also subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, the front page of the latest print edition of The Art Newspaper tells the story of how an eminent art historian provided more than a dozen letters of authenticity to a controversial socialite and businessman for paintings by old masters that were not considered genuine or by the hands of the artists. The works were mostly linked to the great Baroque painter Anthony van Dyck, and some were displayed at a house in Scotland linked to a foundation set up by the new king, Charles III. The report was written by Mark Hollingsworth and Georgina Adam, and I spoke to Georgina all about it. Georgina, we're talking about a story that you've written which is on the front page of the Current Art newspaper. It's about somebody called James Stunt. Who is he?
1: So James Stunt is now a bankrupt but he really hit the headlines a few years ago. He was married to Petra Eccleston who is the daughter of the Formula One boss Bernie Eccleston and she's extremely rich and he lived really on the high hog, as they say, with (laughs) 200,000 bottles of wine and a fleet of cars, bodyguards and everything. And he collected art and that was our interest in him. Famously, he bought a Van Dyke and then gave it up and it went to the National Portrait Gallery.
0: Now, the story also relates to Dumfries House. Now, Dumfries House is a house in Scotland, which is Owned by King Charles, and is, it's where his foundation sits. And, and some of these works were lent to exhibitions up in
1: Dumfries House. Is that right? Yes. The story is about a series of 14 works of art that were authenticated by a single former museum director, Malcolm Rogers. So, Dumfries House belongs to King Charles's charity, and a number of paintings were lent by James Stunt to Dumfries House Uh, and among them were five works by Van Dyck, one by Velasquez, and one by Goya. The problem is that these and other works, a total of 14 altogether, had been authenticated, although he doesn't exactly use the word. He'd given a scholarly opinion on them and the person who gave this scholarly opinion is a former museum director, Malcolm Rogers. Now, he denies authenticating them, but all of them had been promoted from being Circle of Studio Van Dyck into being autograph works.
0: Okay, so this is a curious aspect of this whole story, isn't it? Because a scholar can say, I think it is likely to be a work by Van Dyck and then say, I didn't attribute it It was just my scholarly opinion is that right
1: yes of course obviously we asked malcolm rogers about this and he said no i never authenticated any of these works but i did give my extremely closely argued scholarly opinion of course what happened was that by giving his scholarly opinion he enormously increased the value of these works of art which previously had sold sometimes for about twenty thousand and once they were put into Dumfries house by stunt these works suddenly were put with huge values, 20 million in one case. So his opinion had the effect of vastly increasing the value. And of course, there's another story behind that, which is that James Stunt was hoping, and this we know, to borrow money against these works, which of course were sprinkled with the gold dust of having been in Dumfries house.
0: Great. So There is no evidence that you know of that James Stunt is trying to sell these works as such, but he wants to use them as collateral against loans.
1: He did also attempt to sell them. He is officially bankrupt. He is also facing uh, charges of money laundering in a British court, charges which he denies. So he certainly has had massive money problems. I know for a fact that he did attempt to sell some. And I also know for a fact that he attempted to borrow money against these works of art.
0: Right. Malcolm Rogers, let's talk about him because he has a, um, a distinguished museum career behind him, doesn't he?
1: Absolutely. He's a specialist of 17th-century portraiture. He was the director of the Boston Museum of Fine Arts and he was a second in command at the National Portrait Gallery. So he's a, a distinguished scholar.
0: Indeed. So let's let's talk about the attributions then because isn't this what happens all the time, you know, works are regarded as minor works and then brilliant scholars Identify them as actual autograph works and they get promoted. Isn't that just part of the whole nature of art history?
1: Absolutely. I mean, sleepers happen all the time, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. What is curious in this case is that so many sleepers by the same artist, 12 in total of Van Dyck's, were reassessed, shall we say, by the same single scholar who is Malcolm Rogers. And this is why we ran the story, because it did seem to us extraordinary and unusual for so many works by a single artist to be reattributed by the same person.
0: Was there a sort of uh, set process that Stunt and Rogers would go through in in terms of acquiring and then gauging the opinion, etc.?
1: Well, from what we understand, and I have seen some of the letters, Stunt would acquire these works of art either at auction or through a dealer as circle of, studio of, and so on. He would present them to Malcolm Rogers. Malcolm Rogers would then write a letter saying that, in his opinion, they were autograph works. And that letter would go to Stunt along with the picture, obviously.
0: Right. And when he wrote those letters was there any equivocation have you you've seen some of these letters from rogers is there any it may be it could be or were they very firmly suggesting that they were indeed autograph works
1: Oh, very much firmly suggesting that they were. Absolutely. And uh, carrying his congratulations, well done, for finding this work. No, there was virtually no equivocation. Now, we obviously asked Malcolm Rogers about this. And he said, well, these are my opinion, and I can sometimes change my mind. But the letters themselves can be really quite, are quite firm in his opinion, that these are autograph works.
0: Right. And is there anything we know about whether he was paid for his opinion?
1: So this is something that is a little bit of a grey area. He claims he was not paid, though he says that he did receive gifts and we asked what the value of the gifts were and he did not reply to that one. However, a former security guard, in fact, more than a security guard, a sort of majordomo for Stunt, says that at some point when Stunt was not paying for his services, he i went to court in order to find out about Stunt's finances, and he claims that he saw payments from Stunt to Rogers. So we have a situation where we can't really tell. Malcolm Rogers denies it. And this security guard says that he did see payments.
0: And then rather wonderfully, you've spoken to a security guard and, as you say, this other figure who dealt with security and financial aspects. So you really have got access to Stunt's wider world and the kind of financial or otherwise deals that are being made by him.
1: You can imagine that we would not have run this story if we did not have solid documentation about these various aspects.
0: Okay, so obviously, we know that Rogers is an expert and therefore it's instructive to compare his opinion with other opinions. Have you been able to get any of those?
1: Well, there is a catalogue resume and one of the authors was Susan Barnes. Now, Susan Barnes subsequently retired. In an email to a researcher, she dismissed three of the Van Dykes, which had been authenticated I use the word in the sense an opinion was given by Malcolm Rogers she said that they were absolute copies there was one that she thought yes was autograph however when I contacted her she told me she'd retired she did no longer want to give any opinions on Van Dyke, and so the conversation ended there Another of the authors who was a great specialist was Oliver Miller, but unfortunately he's died. So it was difficult to get more opinions. I did ask Christie's who they went to now, if they have a Van Dyke, and they said, well, we generally try to get a consensus from scholars, so that wasn't very helpful. And Sotheby's, when I asked the same question, have not got back to me. So it does seem that it's rather difficult to be sure as far as Van Dyke is concerned, and of course he was very prolific. But
0: as you say, there is that rather convincing piece of evidence that you have in an email which relates very directly to three of these works.
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. We have that. We've seen that document.
0: I guess the, the next question to ask is, do you know from Dumfries House, for instance, what their reaction is to this information?
1: Uh, No, as you can imagine, something like that is rather embarrassing. The pictures were all withdrawn from Dumfries house, and it's not quite clear where they are at the moment. I think they are part of the stunt holdings, which presumably are under a court order, since he's a bankrupt. But of course, the pictures are not worth nearly as much as he claimed since mixed in with the Van Dykes that I wrote about were also four outright fakes which we know who painted them he's a Californian faker who has come forward and said yes yes I painted them one was a Monet one was a Dali one was a Chagall and one was a Picasso and those are outright fakes and not even attempting really to be genuine
0: Right. One of the big issues, and this is an issue which is affecting scholarship right across the field at the moment, is that because of the vast sums of money involved and the vast valuations, a lot of scholars feel very trepidatious about giving opinions in matters like this because it's potentially litigious. Is that something that you've noted when you've been reporting on issues relating to old master valuations and so on?
1: This is definitely a major problem today. There is such a fear. For a start, the sums of money are so huge now. If you get the quotes, wrong quotes, opinion from somebody about a work of art that you think is by a well-known artist and they reject it. Quite often you can go to court and as we know for more contemporary works like the Warhol Authentication Committee actually closed down because of the lawsuits they were getting and I think scholars are terribly nervous of giving their opinion for fear of lawsuits and I think it really is having a chilling effect on scholarship for this very reason.
0: Right. So what do you think is going to happen next now that, you know, this story's come out, but also Stunt has been declared a bankrupt? Does this just go away now? Or do you think this this whole issue will resurface?
1: It's difficult to say what the next, I mean, there hasn't been any reaction really to the story. For example, we had obviously asked Malcolm Rogers for his opinion, and he sent me a long letter about it. Stunt is a bankrupt and has not reacted. Where are the pictures? I don't actually know. Are they not going to be completely tainted by this story? I think they are, and it probably means that their value, which I think the whole collection was set at about £200 million, I think we can kiss goodbye to that sort of valuation on the basis of these opinions.
0: Well, Georgina, thank you for telling us about this intriguing story.
1: Thank you for having me. You can read more about this
0: story at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for Android or iOS, which you can download from Google Play or the App Store. Coming up, Monet Mitchell in Paris and Elizabeth I and the Tudors in New York. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. A 65-year-old man has been arrested after toppling two ancient busts in the Vatican Museums on Wednesday. The artefacts have sustained moderate damage and have been taken to the museum's restoration department for repair. The man is reportedly an American citizen who was born in Egypt. He was stopped by the Vatican Gendarmerie in the Kiramonte Museum, a long corridor lined with statues and busts, shortly after he threw the objects to the ground. Pictures on social media show the artefacts lying on the floor. The base of one of them appears to have become detached. What Dmitry Ozakov, the head of the Contemporary Art Department at the State Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, has resigned due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ozakov told the art newspaper that director Mikhail Piotrowski's interview confirming his support for Vladimir Putin's actions further catalyzed his decision to step down. He added that he's also quit his posts for other St. Petersburg art projects and the local government's Council for Culture. Ozakov would not confirm where he's moved to but posted an image on social media suggesting he's relocated to Isfahan in Iran. And finally, the UK Prime Minister Liz Truss has rejected suggestions that an agreement can be made with Greece over sharing the Parthenon marbles, which have been housed at the British Museum in London since the early 19th century. Her position puts her at odds with George Osborne, the chairman of the British Museum and former UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, who said earlier this year there is a deal to be done with Greece. When asked about a possible deal, Truss told the TV and radio channel GB News that she didn't support the idea. It's a shift from the stance of the former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who, after meeting the Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis last November, said that any decision on returning the Parthenon marbles to Greece was for the trustees at the British Museum to make. You can read more on all these stories on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This October, as the art world gathers together once again in the vibrant city of London, Christie's presents 20th, 21st century art, bringing you a robust and dynamic Freeze Week programme. Kicking off on the 13th of October with two highlight auctions, tune in live to marvel at stunning highlights such as David Hockney's Early Morning, Saint Maxime, and Francis Bacon's Painting 1990 in the Evening Sale, alongside works by Elena Tsui, Lynette Yadomboachi, Ibrahim El-Salahi, Samuel Fosso and Elias Sime, offered from Robert Devereux's collection of contemporary African art in the sale A Place with No Name, works from the Sina Gina collection. Continuing until the 20th of October with a series of evening, day, and online sales, don't miss the breadth of remarkable works in dialogue across centuries and geographies, from Ellis Lowry and Frank Auerbach to Jean Michel Basquiat, Banksy, and Christina Banban. Auction highlights are on view at King Street from the 6th of October. Discover more on Christie's.com. Welcome back. Now, the Chicago-born abstract painter Joan Mitchell had a love affair with France. Born in 1927, Mitchell was one of the few women to gain prominence in the male-dominated New York school of the 1950s and exhibited in the famous Ninth Street Show in 1951. As early as 1955, however, she was dividing her time between New York and France. She settled permanently in Paris in 1959 but eventually found a house in Viteuil, a small town northwest of the French capital in 1967 before moving there for good from 1968 until her death in 1992. Vetois already had a distinguished artistic history, because it was where Claude Monet had lived at the height of his Impressionist notoriety, and the town was not far from Monet's eventual home in Giverny. A new show at the Fondation Louis Vuitton, the Frank Gehry building in the Bois de Boulogne in Paris, attempts to forge even deeper connections between the two painters. Monet Mitchell features 60 works by the two artists, focusing on Monet's later years and his paintings of the Namfea, or Water Lilies, and Agapanthus in the Giverny Garden, and paintings from across Mitchell's career, including the 1983 series La Grande Vallée. The show's accompanied by a retrospective of Mitchell's work, a version of the exhibition that appeared at SF MoMA in San Francisco in 2021 and at the Baltimore Museum of Art earlier this year. The curator in Paris of both exhibitions is Suzanne Paget, artistic director of the Fondation Louis Vuitton, and she took me on a tour of The Moni Mitchell Show. Suzanne you actually made an exhibition with Joan Mitchell in 1982, ten years before she died. Can you tell me some memories about Joan?
2: Oh, Joan was a very intense, very strong, a little savage, but first for me, hypersensitive, understand that you are totally moved by her. And for me, it's a great, great emotional souvenir. And I think that her painting is so extraordinarily emotional. She's a very strong, singular colorist, but she's also the painter of emotion first.
0: That emotion comes so strongly to the fore in her paintings. At that time, when you made that exhibition, was she seen as a French painter as well as an American painter or very much as, as an American in France? She has been uh,
2: an American painter. You know, first she is born in, in Chicago. She has been very familiar of the Art Institute of Chicago and at this museum she has looked at a, a lot of French painting and she knew all the French painting in twentieth century. But she was first really involved, and it's quite extraordinary, in the very first exhibition of the expressionist abstract painters, that is to say, all the group with Klein, de Kooning, Pollock, etc. And it was in 1951. She was only 26. So uh, she has really been involved first in the American art of artistic life. But, but she was very cultivated and she knows a lot of things. And you know that after, she has evolved between France and New York. Generally, she went to France during spring and summer and she spent a lot of time in winter and autumn in New York. Perhaps it's the key of her art. She was not... American. She was not French. She said always, I was too American for French. I, I was considered as Sauvage. And for American, I was too French. But very important, she said for everybody, I was a woman. And it's very important. We have to really consider that woman, it was by definition, second class. And especially because she, she was also the second generation of expression is abstract. All her uh, day life, you know, she painted uh, during night.
0: That's right, yes, she would sleep for most of the day and then paint at night.
2: Yeah, so, you know, she, she had not uh, the common life and she painted with very strong colour during night and you have to know that the windows of her studio in Vitek, they were uh, opposite. Life. So really, she was disconnected of, of normal life.
0: Absolutely. So tell us about Veteuil before we talk more about the exhibition. Veteuil, she lived there from 1967 permanently until the end of her life.
2: She, she came in Vitoi in '68, mm-hmm. And what was very new for her, she had finally a big studio. So at this time, she has discovered her landscape, but she has also had the possibility to really work in a big studio. She made a very successful painting she could use very monumental paintings
0: right so the studio was about six meters long wasn't
2: it yes it was long and she she loved to look at painting first very very far and come back very close and what she wanted when we were in her studio it's only to look at she refused totally the conceptual discourse She said that it was white words. So for a a colorist, it was absolutely not acceptable. She wanted only to be enclosed in her studio with poetry. She was very connected to poetry, American and French, even the classic Rilke, Baudelaire, etc. And poetry and music. When she painted in her studio, she had always, always music. Very important music. Patti Smith has said something very just. She said it's like she painted notes. And it's true. And it's true also for Monet. We feel music, we see vibration. This painting is really something that we have to hear. We have to be silent to look long time but also to hear the works and you feel the vibrations.
0: Do you think that might have something to do with Joan having synesthesia?
2: Yes, probably. Certainly because she sees uh, the words in colour. Absolutely, She, she was synesthetic. But I feel also that she was completely transparent to very sensitive impressions, and music was really something vital for her.
0: So we're in the first room of the show now. What did... Joan say about Claude Monet
2: during her life? The first day where I arrived at Viteuil, you know, from her terrace, we could see a small house, much smaller than her, where Monet had lived during three years. So it's very short time, from seventy-eight until eighty-one, uh, during his life. So, but she was very sarcastic and she said to me... Please Suzanne, everybody speaks to me about money. Please don't speak about money. But it was much more complex. And uh, there is a uh, famous interview where she is very clear about that and she says no I was not interested by the first money, but of course I love the, the last money. Which is in our show. The late Monet was being recognized first by artists, expressionists, abstract in USA in the fifties, and Greenberg and first André Masson and many artists because he was very badly received in France when the NaFAir in 27 had been presented. It, it was catastrophic. It was a terrible uh, critique. Yeah, they, said they basically said
0: his career Be- made a disaster of his career. It, it was
2: think. a disaster because he had completely changed his technique. He, he became very, very free. He changed everything. And, and, and also the size of his painting.
0: Right absolutely and we're, and we're in this first room now and we can see there's this wonderful correspondence straight away from the very very first room between Joan and Claude Monet and you've done it very neatly here with colour so we're looking at Monet with lots of mauve and purple and green and then we have a Joan painting called, called Chant uh, so she, she titled it in French I presume she didn't call it Field, she called it Chant is that right?
2: No, no, the titles are not significative. Sometimes somebody has given the title after. There are some titles which are only descriptive, but this one, no, in general. No, so the first room is about reflections and transparencies. That is to say that all these exhibitions want to be very, very sensitive and try to, to give very sensitive consonance between the world. In a musical sense, the echo between the works. But we have yet some thematic, very common thematic, so landscape and country, and reflection and transparency. Water is, is, is very common to the two artists.
0: One of the things I'm struck by, looking at the pictures, is that, to begin with, Joan's work looks much more open and expansive between the marks whereas Monet is more dense do you see what I'm saying that, that there is an openness because she's more able to be freer
2: and at this time Monet is an old man and you know of course it's not the same gest, huh? she was an athlete and you, you, you exactly see, she's an athlete you yes. The, yes but I think the two ones are very close in the use of the same gamut of colours but also the, the white and the white in the two cases open the space and give life to the work. And it's really common. And the same colors in this room, the blue, the green, the purple. And a little pink. And it's strange because John said, you know, when I go out in the morning, out of her studio, for me, it's purple. Monet has yet said that... When he goes out in the morning, it's purple. But for me, in any case, when I go out in the morning, it's purple.
0: Do you think there was a certain element in which she didn't want to talk about Monet because then it would be too fixed for her too?
2: You know, it was not an obsession. Huh? The great reference artist for her was very clearly Cézanne, Matisse and above all Van Gogh. Yeah. and you can see in the show so Van Gogh for the colorist but also for emotional power yeah. so the great reference for all was Van Gogh but Matisse and Cézanne too
0: Right, but it's interesting isn't it that here, now showing her alongside Monet it seems so at home, next to her it seems absolutely consistent with what she is doing
2: You know, the works are very close you know, perhaps you have to make the difference she did not think at all at Monet when she painted. No, not at all. She was in music, she was only in what a colour makes to another colour, only that. But us, these paintings are so living, so, so contemporary. They go so deeply in each of us that, yes, we see the same. Because the great artists, they are contemporary artists all. You can say that about Poussin. Perhaps Poussin will be not so bad today (laughs) uh, with them. And, and, you know, landscape, etc., etc. But, you know, it's eternal. And, of course, there are correspondences, yes. But they have not wanted. Monet did not know John, of course. And John was not at all obsessed by Monet. No, she had exactly the same objective, the feeling that was the souvenir of the emotion before a landscape it was exactly what Monet wanted at this time he has said very clearly I can forget all the elementary rules of the painting to only try to keep the sensation so they have the same objective and they say it's the same kind of color
0: um, now we come up to a gallery which is actually making the point that you just made about sensation and feeling. What are you doing in this gallery? Which works have you included and what are they telling us?
2: I think uh, sensation and feeling is a common objective of all the paintings of of this exhibition. But in this part of the exhibition, you see completely another register of uh, of feeling uh, uh, through the colours. You see here always colours very contrasted, but... Here you have not the blue, you have the strong different gamme of colours with green and yellow and purple. But you know, it's in fact very strange to see how artists finally, when they have the same objective, they find (laughs) the same solutions. And also always very present and it's clear with Monet here, especially because you see that we have put out the frames. So we see very well that the white is very important for Monet and very important for John also. It makes light and it opens the painting. And it's important in
0: different ways, isn't it? Because in some of the paintings you have bits of bare canvas and in other paintings, Joan does this wonderful thing where she has lots of space with the bare canvas and then she paints with white too, right? Yes,
2: on the paintings of John there are a, a lot of coats, yeah, a lot of, of course. You are very thick, bending, and sometimes very delicate because she uses a lot of terribentan, and she dilutes the color. The contrast between very strong. And some very delicate... And of course, in the Monet, it's more soft,
3: yes.
0: Yes, absolutely. But you do, you're right, you really feel the athlete in Joan... Because she's these these enormous canvases, aren't they? The huge things, so she's really throwing her body into it.
2: She she attacked the the painting with all the the bodies... uh, And the violence that she had in her body, but in her, her... She had to say something very passionate, very emotional... And Monet, at this moment of his life, he, his body was more so, so agile, of course.
4: Is
0: that expression, that gestural language of Jones, to do with an internal emotional life, or is it about feeling for the landscape, or is it a sort of intermingling of those two things?
2: It's a mix, you know. She was a very ardent, very passionate woman. She... Feels everything very emotionally, so she translates that, and through a body which was very athletic, and she was so hypersensitive to all violence. She had such a violence in herself, and she wanted to say also very strongly what she had to say. Of course, the painting of Monet is more contemplative, eh, but it's also very sensual at this time. You have to feel the complete freedom of how he paints, so you can see through the layers. It has never been so free. He is an old man, very, very free suddenly, not at all like the first impressionist painting.
0: Yes, and, and, and also it strikes me that it's hugely important that both of them were, to some extent, isolated where they were so Monet's wife had, had died, his son had died, he was very alone in some no, ways no, at Chiverny, you know?
2: Monet, like John, at this moment, they were completely isolated, alone she was not at all fashionable because, you know, it was a triumph of pop and minimalism and conceptual. nobody looked at her anymore And she persists to go on. And one and the other, all their paintings are Ode to Joy. It's absolutely marvellous.
0: There's actually one painting called Ode to Joy downstairs, which is based on, on, is it the Franco-Hara poem? Yes,
2: and at this time that she has wanted to celebrate a death of a very close, she has made absolutely bright and living and very vital Yes. painting with blue, yellow, etc., And she says to me, Suzanne, you have to know, uh, yellow is not necessarily happy. No. And you can imagine the sun through the rain. Yeah. But the two ones, Monet and Michel, had a very terrible, sad life, and they gave, as Matisse said, joie de vivre.
0: You mentioned Matisse there. And and this is a work called Beauvais, and is it right that she saw a Matisse show?
2: Exactly. Beauvais, it's our collection. When the works of Matisse from Hermitage came at Lille, she has wanted to see absolutely the Matisse. So she goes through Beauvais. It's the souvenir of Beauvais when she was going to Lille.
0: It's amazing, because if you were to look at it, you might not say... It reminds me of Matisse, but, no, no, but, but, but it's about that emotion in front of she Matisse.
2: She needed to look at Matisse to make John michel you know.
0: Absolutely. And and at this point, you've paired Beauvais with this wonderful spread of the Namphea paintings. It's one of those sort of vistas where you just have to gasp because it's just so wonderful.
2: Yes, and, and you know what is very interesting is how he has changed. You see painting without without limit. Suddenly, you don't know where it begins, where it finishes. What's up or down. Yes, yes, absolutely. And you don't see any more perspective. We are inside the painting, exactly like expressionist abstract.
0: Let's go upstairs to the really grand end to the show. Now, Suzanne, we're coming to the end of the show, and there are two rooms in which you have put together some of the great sequences. Here we're just surrounded by Monet paintings. Can you tell us about these?
2: So this triptych is for the first time uh, exhibited since '56, where it has been exhibited at the Katya Granov Gallery but probably not together because it's very long it's, it's near 30 metres. Right. And they now exist in three Different So, it's the first time that they are together in the same configuration. So, it's very moving. And when you see this very contemplative work, you don't realize that Monet has worked during 10 years. And he has put a lot, a lot of different layers of painting. And the name Agapante... You can look, you don't see Agapant. Why? Because in fact, Agapant is... It's beneath
0: the surface.
2: There are, in some place, until eight layers of painting. And during ten years, uh, he came back on the painting and finally it was very naturalist at the beginning and it comes to limit of complete abstraction. When they arrive here, I have discovered I have, that finally... You see, here, he has had, at the last minute, some more naturalist details. So, the colors of, of exactly the colors of jaune pink and, and yellow. So, you see, what is interesting, that he was going to a certain kind of abstraction, but he always finally speak from a, a real motif and you find the Naféa uh, the water lily, yeah so never completely abstract
0: that's right, but you don't you think that the way this show is so clever is that when I see these marks, I think of Joan, I think I'm, yes. I'm looking at her, no, her, exactly. her, her <laughs> painting <laughs>
2: exactly, of. like, like if, if Joan came and, and had that the same colour, exactly the, the, the yellow, the purple, the blue the, the, the pink, yes it's John. quite extraordinary, and we have discovered here. And it's very strange that the name Agapante, they're behind, but they are, we can't see anymore yeah. because he, he, he has put a lot. And of course, the painting becomes more and more contemplative and more and more abstract, yes.
0: Absolutely, and so moving, as you say. Well, let's go and look at Joan's yeah. La Grande Vallée. Now, we said that that last space was very moving but we're surrounded by 10 Joan paintings here. Ten. And I'm almost overwhelmed. It's so beautiful, this space. Tell us about the La Grande Vallée.
2: La Grande Vallée is always the same purpose. It's about somebody who was evocated, the uh, uh, idyllic souvenir of a young boy, he was 20, who was just dead uh, with a cancer. Mm-hmm and the cousin of this man uh, has related to John the story of their escapade when when they were young in a very secret place where children love to be a part of the world
0: a secret landscape a secret
2: landscape and a a beautiful uh, paradise with birds, insects, flowers, etc. only their place and it's so moving because it's extraordinary it's a place for for bonheur de vivre and joy and it's a kind of uh, uh, memorial work
0: yes exactly so on the one hand there's this a memory which is being translated by Joan into paint, but somebody else's memory. But you also feel that she's searching for that landscape to a degree.
2: it's so vivid, so extraordinary, bright, so, so full. It's extraordinary, yes.
0: It is amazing. And obviously this was made towards the end of her life. In, in fact, the year after you no, met it, her, it, is that
2: right? it was not the, the end of her life. No, the last one you can see in the retrospective, in the late works you can see one which a painting down that I can't look at with, without crying it's very close of uh, Van Gogh mm. the Chant de au Corbeau very famous yeah. and this a direct souvenir of, uh, of this this is wheat field
0: with crows is the translation yes yeah, but
2: yeah. it's so extraordinary movie that is very moving also because it's so vivid and it's about death in fact and so so it's very clear, it's exactly John. She was aggressive, but in fact, no, she was so hyper sensitive to the world. I hope that the show gives that to the spectator, yes.
0: Well, thank you so much, Susanne.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Monet Mitchell and the Joan Mitchell Retrospective are at the Fondation Louis Vuitton in Paris until the 27th of February 2023. Joan Mitchell Paintings 1979 to 1985 is at David's Zwirner in New York from the 3rd of November until the 17th of December. Now it's time for the work of the week. On the 10th of October the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York will open the Tudors Art and Majesty in Renaissance England. Featuring more than 100 paintings, tapestries, sculptures and other objects it explores the tumultuous Tudor period of British history from King Henry VII's seizure of the throne in 1485 through the reign of arguably England's most famous and fabled monarch Henry VIII to the death of his daughter Queen Elizabeth I in 1603. Among the highlights is a portrait. Portrait Of Elizabeth, made by Quentin Metsys the Younger in 1583, known as the Civ Portrait. I spoke to the organisers of the show, Elizabeth Clelland, curator in the Metz Department of European Sculpture and Decorative Arts, and Adam Eker, associate curator in its Department of European Paintings, about the picture. Elizabeth, I'll begin with you before we move on to talking about the painting itself. You're a British person in America doing a show about the Tudors, one of the things I'm really aware of is, of course, for people like me, the Tudors have a vastly greater significance in my sort of cultural makeup than they do for a lot of people who will be listening to this. What do they mean to, for instance, an American audience?
3: Well, I have to say, I think both my fantastic co-curator Adam and I have always loved the Tudors. Many Americans have a childhood Interest in the Tudor court, and I think Adam can speak more to this, but perhaps they evoke more than any other dynasty this essence of English royalty, ironically enough, as we argue in our exhibition. I would say it's been very liberating approaching the Tudors on this side of the Atlantic rather than in Britain, because there is perhaps less expectation to tell the established story, to feel the need to illustrate each of Henry VIII's six wives, to have some reference to all four Thomases to somehow wrangle in Mary Queen of Scots. And one of the parameters Adam and I established for ourselves when we started thinking about this exhibition is that we really wanted to share with the Met's visitors a sense of the incredibly high caliber of the art and the artworks which could be experienced in England during the long 16th century. So we didn't set out to tell a history and illustrate it with some times less than top-rank artworks. Instead, we really only wanted to share the most virtuoso pieces from the period. So to a certain extent, we escaped the constraint of having to illustrate every bullet point of the traditional Tudor narrative. And I think one of the great advantages of being in the States is that there's the possibility to explore the freshness of this material, to look at the Tudors with new eyes, to think a bit more carefully about the context from which they're springing, to establish right from the get-go that they didn't have an entirely legitimate claim to the throne and that they are trying to assert themselves throughout all three generations of the Tudor monarchs.
0: And Adam, is it fair to say that British people can be a bit self-deprecating about our art and culture that was produced in this period. We're fascinated by the history but we may not esteem the work that was produced in Britain at that time, you know, as much as perhaps it deserves.
4: I think there is something to that. And one thing that is so fascinating about the Tudor period is it's of course an incredibly gripping and turbulent and transformative moment historically. It's also perhaps the greatest chapter in the history of English literature if you think about Shakespeare and Wyatt and Sidney and Spencer and Marlowe. And at the same time, already in the Elizabethan era, English people were deprecating English art of the period. So if you go back to someone like Richard Haydock, he's lamenting the fact that there are so few great English artists. And what we really wanted was to present a counter-narrative to emphasize the glorious achievements of the visual arts and visual culture more broadly under the Tudor period, which I think requires us to move beyond a very Italo-centric idea of focusing on painting. There are, of course, great paintings from the Tudor period, many of which are in the exhibition, But really some of the heights of the visual arts in the period were reached in tapestry, in embroidery, in goldsmith's work, in armor. And so we wanted to move across media and really present a just visually enthralling and intensely pleasurable presentation of Tudor art.
0: That's great. And we're going to talk about a painting, but actually, it incorporates so much more. So let's begin talking about it. It's called the sieve portrait, Adam. Why is it called that?
4: It's called the sieve portrait because of this very strange attribute that Elizabeth I carries in it. So she's holding a sieve, and this is an attribute that appears in a number of her portraits, both in painting and in cameo jewels. And it's included here as an emblem of her virginity. Of course, Elizabeth I was known as the Virgin Queen. She famously never married. And the sieve is one symbol of that status because it goes back to a Roman legend that there was a vestal virgin who was in charge of caring for a sacred flame in the city of Rome. And she was accused falsely of violating her vow of chastity. And in order to prove that she hadn't done this, she called on the gods to allow her to carry water in a sieve. So an impossible task, but one that she executed. And Elizabeth here and her portraitist, Quentin Metzise the Younger, is picking up on that ancient Roman symbol. So it is an instance of classical revival to go back to this story. It's appealing to a learned viewer who can decipher this symbol. And it's one of many different references to ancient myth, to Italian literature that you can find throughout the portrait.
0: Elizabeth, can you tell us more about the rich environment that Elizabeth is in? Because it's an amazingly detailed portrait. We've got all sorts of interior detail, but also the extraordinary clothing she's wearing and so on.
3: Absolutely. I love this portrait. I love the fact that we recognize Elizabeth, even though it's perhaps not one of the really greatest hits, most familiar, most often reproduced portraits of the Queen. And one of the great details about it is that very, very rich black and gold color scheme, then punctuated by these glorious pockets of color in the background, which give us a little bit of a sense of. Uh, Perhaps idealized view of the Tudor court and the courtiers gathering in colonnade behind the Queen. There's also this glorious colonnette to her side with the figurative detail. These little aspects which uh, give us hints of the material sumptuousness of the Tudor court. And that's certainly something we've tried to pick up on then in our presentation of Tudor material as a whole in the exhibition. It's very much a collaboration from our two different curatorial areas of expertise, Adam being a paintings curator and I, a Descartes curator, to really, I hope, give our visitors a sense of that wonderful assault on the eyes that visitors to the Tudor court would have experienced, these pockets of rich colour, of different textures, of different media and materials, which are all hinted at very subtly in Metzais' fantastic painting.
0: Adam, can one say, looking at it, that the Queen is in this sort of, as Elizabeth just referred to, this sort of grey and black interior space, and then this colourful space beyond? Is that a sort of mark of her seriousness amid perhaps a greater frivolity outside her own quarters in the court, if you know what I mean?
4: I think you can certainly say that she's depicted as a figure apart, and someone who has retreated to a more private space. A kind of closet in the Tudor terminology. And we've attempted in the exhibition to recreate some of that architectural language of punctuating long galleries and striking vistas with spaces of retreat and contemplation. One of the things that's so striking about the portrait is the really melancholy nature of the depiction of the queen, not only in her black attire, but something that's also reinforced through the different poetic inscriptions in Italian that say things like, weary I rest, and having rested I am still weary, or I see everything and much is lacking. And these are quotes from the Italian lyric Poet Petrarch. So there is very much an association of the queen with a kind of melancholy and cynical lyrical voice. And at the same time, she appears in front of this really splendid column that is embellished with narrative scenes from the story of Dido and Aeneas. Dido being the tragic queen of Carthage who is seduced and then abandoned by the Trojan hero Aeneas. And what's so striking is that the Queen Elizabeth is not identified with Dido as a powerful female ruler. She's actually identified with Aeneas as the founder or the great leader of a dynasty who forswears love and passion out of a commitment to duty. And so it's a really fascinating gender reversal that grounds her both in the melancholy voice of the dejected lover from Petrarch's lyrics, and also in a much earlier Virgilian tradition of the ruler who forswears passion and love out of a commitment to duty.
0: And of course, there's a globe in there, isn't there, Elizabeth? And and, and that obviously is a tremendously important message about the power of England and its burgeoning empire and so on.
3: Absolutely. I think that's one of the exciting stories to tell uh, when we're looking at England during this period. It's really the moment when the English wake up and realize. There's the rest of the world out there, not just in Europe, but beyond Europe. Of course, there had been travel beforehand, but we're really moving out of the sort of John de Mandeville type fabulous tales and into an era when many people were able to travel to study for trade and so forth. And the English are absolutely thrilled to be able to acquire artworks produced beyond Europe. In the show, of course, we touch a lot on German painting, Italian sculpture, Flemish tapestries, but we also have Chinese porcelain, Indian mother of pearl, Burmese rubies. In the paintings, we can often see these magnificent Islamic carpets. And this is, from an, the point of view of the artwork, this is such an exciting period when the, those English with enough money to afford it were able to bring some of these fantastic examples of world art into their collections.
0: And Adam, what do we know about Metzies? He's not an enormously well-known painter, is he?
4: He's not. His grandfather was much more famous, um, Quentin Metzies the Elder, who was viewed at the time and still as a founder, really, of the great school of painting in Antwerp. And he painted a very celebrated altarpiece for Antwerp Cathedral, which Elizabeth I actually attempted to buy. Very striking that this Protestant English queen, who's not often considered to be a great connoisseur of painting, was actually attempting to buy what would have been considered already a kind of old master work. And so it really was probably the prestige of his family name that opened doors for Metsais the Younger in England. But I think this is a portrait that really speaks to the cosmopolitanism that we wanted to emphasize in our exhibition because it's a portrait of an English queen by a Flemish painter incorporating Italian poetry that very early on ended up in the collection of the Medici, uh, first in Florence and subsequently in Siena. And I wanted to just go back to your earlier question, about what it meant for us to curate this show in in the United States. And of course, we are an Anglo-American team. But one thing I've been thinking about is that I actually grew up in the state of Virginia, a couple hours south of Washington, D.C., which was named in the Tudor period for the Virgin Queen. So those legacies of Tudor imperial ambition, which of course would have very disastrous and, and violent consequences for many people around the world are still very much with us today.
0: Absolutely. Um, the curious history of this picture is that, is that it sort of disappeared, didn't it? I mean, is it right that it reappeared at the end of the 19th century in Siena, Adam?
4: Yes, it was discovered literally in the attic. And it remains an anomaly at the Pinacoteca Nazionale, which is, of course, a, a fantastic collection of Italian Sienese gold ground paintings. And then you have this curious Elizabethan portrait hung on the landing of a staircase last time I visited. And it probably played a role in diplomacy. We have a report of one English traveler at the start of the 17th century being startled to see a portrait of Elizabeth at one of the Medici palaces. But it's not a picture that would have been particularly interesting to Italian collectors in the 17th or 18th centuries and really seems to have fallen into oblivion only to be rediscovered. And one thing we wanted to do in this show, because there have been, of course, so many British Tudor exhibitions drawing exclusively and understandably only on British collections, we wanted to incorporate many objects from continental museums and other collections that have fascinating provenances going back to Tudor diplomacy, but that haven't been reassembled in the context of an exhibition for centuries.
0: And then, of course, there's this interesting aspect of how we view these people through recent literature and so on. You talked about the contemporary literature of that time, Adam, but of course, Hilary Mantel has just died and she left with us this extraordinary body of work which explores the earlier part of the Tudor period. Do you think that helps, Elizabeth, in bringing new audiences into this period?
3: Undoubtedly. We've already noticed visitors to the exhibition are as often referring to the late Hilary Mantle as they are to the late Queen Elizabeth II. I think uh, it's hard to exaggerate, certainly for the East Coast audience, how important Hilary Mantle was, both her books, but that also the stage play, the television adaptations. She really managed to revive an interest in the period, which is never really flagged here. Obviously, the, the sort of the tabloid sensationism of the Tudor story doesn't need much embellishment. So there's a long-standing interest in that. But I think we can credit Hilary Mantle with really bringing in an intellectual take to it, really evoking the politics, but also the material qualities of Tudor life. And that's certainly something we also evoke in our exhibition. That said, Thomas Cromwell is perhaps not as often represented in the show as as maybe some of the Hilary Mantle fans would like. He has a cameo. He's a tiny figure on the frontispiece of the Great Bible, which is a really generous loan from the British Library.
0: Thank you, Elizabeth and Adam, for telling us about this extraordinary painting. Our pleasure.
3: Thanks so much.
0: The Tudors' Art and Majesty in Renaissance England is at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, New York, from the 10th of October until the 8th of January next year. And that's it for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentall and David Clack. And David is also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Georgina, Suzanne, Elizabeth and Adam. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now.